conversations through the years and people, uh, different people have somewhat different ideas about God's uh, place in regards to Israel, what is, uh, how he will act in terms of national Israel. Uh, I do believe uh, many in Israel will come to, come to be saved, uh, but as you've heard me say before, they will be saved by the same grace and through the same sacrifice as Gentiles, which is Christ. In fact, I think in many ways the covenants uh, that God made with his people Israel, the nation Israel, uh, in many ways were reflecting of that, and they were to be the uh, really those who testified of the of the coming grace of God in Christ. Uh, they failed in, in particularly Hosea's indicting them here in their failure to live uh, up to that covenant, to the terms of the covenant. And I believe uh, in some ways there was no restoration under, under that covenant uh, because its terms were clear. Uh, but their restoration is under the ultimate covenant, which is Christ, which I think was the uh, the very covenant of grace from the very beginning. So uh, people ask me at times, are you a covenant theologian or a dispensationalist? And I said, I don't know. Uh, so if you hear me sound like a covenantal guy, then you say he's a covenantal. But if I don't sound that, you don't have to categorize me as that either. I don't, I don't know what I am in terms of that. Uh, it just seems as though God has a special uh, way of dealing with the nation of Israel. Uh, as, as, as a part from how he dealt with the nations and the Gentiles. And, and I think that's important to grasp because the book of Hosea and all the minor prophets really, uh, and the major prophets, they are, they are dealing specifically with God's people, uh, Israel. This week we're looking at Hosea chapter 8. Uh, it's amazing to me each chapter almost has a phrase uh, that just really uh, outlines the text. Uh, that particular chapter. You remember last week, it was they turn but not upward. Uh, it seemed like the whole chapter revolved around that principle. In this week's uh, chapter, verse 8, uh, in chapter 8, verse 2, that statement for me was they cry out, uh, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. And so that was, that was what they were crying out in their affliction or the affliction to come uh, they were crying out this cry to God. But then when you read that in the rest of the context of the chapter, it really, uh, it really is striking. The prophet proceeds in this chapter, as in the great part of all of this prophecy, to demonstrate by their evil works that, in fact, the true God of Israel they did not know. And they're, they're saying the very opposite. My God, we know you. Well, the reality, everything he's prophesying about and every indictment against Israel was demonstrative of the fact that, no, you don't. If you knew me, you would have been making the adjustments in your practices, but your sin is evidence that you don't know me. And so that really does frame this very much. And so let's read chapter 8 together and see if we can glean some things to help us from chapter 8. It begins here, Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. 
They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I didn't know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it's not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will, will be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no head. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would just swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, even though they hire allies among the nations. Now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, we are dependent upon you for, for understanding of me, for clarity of thought and speech. And Father, for those who are gathered this morning for, uh, for discernment and hearing. And Lord, we pray that you might speak that which you would desire in our own hearts from these words of Hosea. Lord, I pray as well that we might recognize uh, the parallels in many ways of Israel's sin and God's indictment upon his own people to the sins in our world and in our nation today as well. We are no, no less ripe for judgment than Israel was in its day. And so, Father, I pray that we might hear this, not, not only we in this room, but, Father, uh, that by your Spirit, this truth, these words may even go out into our community, into our land, that pulpits and preachers all around would be proclaiming these prophecies of Hosea and the other prophets as well. For our nation needs to hear these things. And so help us this morning as we look into your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just kind of going to work through this this morning. Uh, I don't know how far I will get, but I will conclude tonight. If I finish this morning, then I'll uh, move on to chapter 9 tonight. But in the very first verse, uh, the indications and the implications of so much that's said here shapes the way we think about this. He begins the very first phrase there, put the trumpet to your lips. So we know that the trumpet uh, is an instrument. Uh, it's an instrument to be loud. It's clear and audible. In fact, the trumpet can be heard fairly expansively. In essence, he's saying to Hosea here, your lips are the trumpets. Uh, your lips, Hosea, are, is going to be the instrument by which I want you to make it clear and audible and expansive across the nation of Israel. In other words, what he's about to say is critical. Uh, in fact, judging by the next verse, it might even be related to a trumpet used in battle. 
Sometimes the trumpet would sound the victory. Sometimes the trumpet would sound the defeat or the, the withdrawal or the, or the retreat. Sometimes the trumpet would have a mournful sound of defeat and call the troops to uh, evacuate the battlefield for we have defeated and we have fallen in battle. So he may have both ideals here. But he begins this chapter with sound the trumpet. As I said, the very next phrase there, like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. If you study the scriptures much, you'll, you'll understand that often when we see the word translated eagle, uh, in our understanding, that's more like a vulture. Uh, when they call, even in Revelations, for the eagle to come to the battlefield because of the carcasses and the dead bodies, it has more the implications of a vulture in many ways. And that was interesting because a vulture, we know, comes to devour what's already dead. I've never seen a vulture uh, killing anything. A vulture is not a bird of prey. Uh, they circle and they ride the updrafts and they scan and they wait for the bodies to fall. And when the body falls and there's no movement, finally the buzzards or the vultures come in a little at a time and they begin to take up station. And when they're sure that the carcass is dead and there's no life there, then they, begin to, then they become to consume the carcass. And so he's saying to Hosea here, put the trumpet to your lips and sound the warning. It could mean, Israel, you're already dead. There's nothing left but for you to be consumed now. You are, you are already dead. You are a carcass, Israel. Now, if he means eagle, it doesn't change the meaning all that much, except that the eagle does kill the prey. The sense is similar However, we do know that an eagle to be a bird of prey, which spies out the activity and movements and the vulnerabilities of, it, of its unsuspecting prey. It suddenly swoops down and grasps it inescapably in its talons. And there it consumes the carcass after having killed the carcass. So either application is true of Israel. If it's an eagle, then to sound the trumpet for you are unsuspecting, but your ways have been observed and the enemy is about to swoop down, take you into its talons, into its grip and consume you there. Whereas with the vulture, he's just coming to consume you because you're already dead. That's a sobering message for Israel to hear. This is God's people. In fact, that's why they cry that later on. How can this be? How can it be that we are a carcass? How can it be that we will be consumed by a bird of prey or by our enemies? The warning here seems to, be, seems to me to be almost given to be reconsidered after God's judgment comes to bear. I thought about this a lot this week. They're not going to hear this. In fact, I'm not sure it would help them to hear it in the moment because it seems as though judgment has already been pronounced. It is coming. You have gone too far, Israel, and I have decreed now the judgment to come upon you. I'm saying this in this prophecy so that when the affliction and the judgment comes, you will then be able to hear what I prophesied. I warned you, but you would not hear it. But the warning is for you to reflect upon once the judgment has come. It seems to me that that's exactly what's happening here, that they might remember these things in their affliction. In fact, I thought that was 
very much applicable to our nation today. We can preach, and we've been preaching for generations the gospel in this nation, and we've talked about the founders and, and the foundation of this company, a country on the Judeo-Christian principles, and there have been warnings all through the ages, but yet we're declining and declining and deteriorating. And even now, when you pronounce these warnings, it seems as though no one's listening. We're America. How could we be dethroned? And it seems to me that this preaching will come to bear whenever we finally are and we find ourselves in affliction and under the oppression of an enemy's hands, then maybe the truth of the preaching will come back to bear in those days and we'll understand that God warns you. You had the prophets, you had the scriptures, you had the word of God and even had the Holy Spirit in the churches and in the Christians of your generation. And they were warning you, but you would not hear. That's similar to the situation that Israel is in here. So the trumpet is being sounded. In verse 1 as well, we see him kind of introduce here the cause of this judgment. He gives really two things there. The eagle is coming. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Interestingly, you know this, but sometimes it helps to define it technically, but the word transgression literally means acting in a manner such as to go beyond the limits of what is morally and legally prescribed. They had transgressed. Let me say it this way. They had acted in a manner so as to go beyond what God had morally and legally prescribed in His covenant with them. They had transgressed the covenant of God. The word prescribed was, is even more interesting because that word literally means to make an authoritative statement or rule uh, that an action or procedure should be carried out, essentially to lay down a rule. So, so why is the trumpet sounding the alarm? Why is the vulture or the eagle coming upon Israel? Because they had, they had failed to follow and to abide by the rule laid down by an almighty God in the covenant. They had gone beyond what was prescribed by God in their covenant. In essence, they had violated their covenant. And as such, they had forfeited any claims they had in the covenant. They, they, had, they, they did not have God in a bind in some ways by the covenant because they themselves had violated the covenant. In fact, that's why he calls them adulterers so often in this book and harlotry. To transgress God's covenant is somewhat inevitable among fallen men of which is reflected in the sacrificial ordinance. I thought about this this week as well. So God gives them a covenant, in this case a covenant of law, the Mosaic law. This is how we will relate. You walk in the law and we will be in relationship with one another. You will have fellowship with God. However, if you sin and when you sin, I will provide for grace and mercy in that moment by providing you a sacrificial system. And in these sacrifices, particularly for sin, there must be bloodshed involved, a lamb or a ram in this sense. There must be bloodshed involved, 
And through this bloodshed and your ascribing to this and recognizing that blood is involved here, you will be restored back to fellowship. So you have the covenant of law and you have the covenant of sacrifice by which they were to relate to God. So in other words, when this sacrificial system, he follows up, became corrupted, they had no other way of rightly fellowshipping with God. If they violated the covenant, there was no righteous sacrificial system by which they could be restored back to relationship with God. This is why they are dead already. There is no hope. They will be consumed by the enemy because there's no rescue for them because not only had they transgressed the covenant and rebelled against his law, they had cheapened the sacrifice to the point that it was not sufficient to do the very thing that God had provided it for them, uh, for them to accomplish. So they are in dire straits here. He says this later on, by the way. You'll pick that up. In verse 2, here is their, what I call the contradictory crowd. This is really where the sermon title came from, the hypocrite's tears. The hypocrite's tears. It's, also, it's as if they're crying against this particular prophecy or perhaps affliction that was on them or that they would do as the affliction came upon them. But they cry, this stunning cry, they cry out to me, he says, My God, we of Israel know you. That's what they say to him. They've transgressed the covenant. They've rebelled against the law. We learn later on that they had cheapened the sacrificial system that he had provided by which they might fellowship with him. And then they have the nerve or the hypocrisy to say in the midst of their affliction, God, we know you. It really is a cry of a contradictory cry. We know you. In fact, this was really the claim undergirding, as it were, their complaint. I thought about what's involved in this cry. What's implied by this cry, God, we know you. I think one, it is, it is a cry of complaint. It's as though they ought not to be afflicted. When suffering comes, when affliction comes, when the heavy hand of God's discipline comes, they cry out, God, my God, we know you. We of Israel know you. The implication is we ought not to be suffering this way. We know you. The nations don't know you. They ought to suffer. They ought to suffer greatly because they don't know you, but we know you. We ought not to be suffering in affliction. That's a cry of complaint. You ever think we complain, we cry like that sometimes? Uh, maybe even as a nation. Why are we suffering as a nation? Why is the economy collapsing? Why is there division and hostility and, and all these dynamics playing out? Why is that happening? This is a nation grounded upon biblical principles. We are a nation who knows you, God. Why is this happening to us? And why do other nations that don't know you seem to be prospering and stable we cry the same way. It's what Israel was crying here. Connected to that, I think it's also implied here, it's a cry of injustice. This is more than they ought not to be afflicted, but this is them saying it's undeserved, as though it was undeserved, unjust. We're your people, God. For us to suffer is, is an injustice. Being your people should mean that there is no suffering or affliction, that we're delivered from all of our enemies, that we prosper and our crops grow and we're fertile and we're, we, we're luxuriant, a luxuriant vine. We're the, 
We're the inheritors of the blessings of being God's people. This is not right. We ought not to be suffering. It's unjust that we suffer. We're your people. I think many in America today may be crying the same way, that our affliction is not just. It's unjust. Well, that's to accuse God of injustice. And to me, the obvious question is, is is our behavior just? Have we violated God's terms? Have we violated His covenant? Have we abandoned the God upon which we began and founded the nation? Have we forsaken God? And if so, our affliction is not unjust. In fact, it's merciful, for if the fullness of God's justice would be poured out, we would be collapsing tomorrow along with every other nation on the planet. So it's a cry of injustice. I think in some ways it is a presumptive cry as well. They seem to say almost with oblivion, we're your people, as though that should somehow immune us and make us immune to to affliction or to suffering. I don't know about you, but we, my mom gave permission to neighbors to tan our hides when we were kids if we got into trouble. And I can only remember one of my neighbors ever doing that, and he just did sort of a light pop to remind me not to misbehave. But none of my other, neighbor, none of my other neighbors' parents ever took mom up on the offer. They dared not, they dared not inflict punishment or afflict another woman's child, even if she gave them permission. And, and it seems as though that's the idea that Israel didn't understand here. In other words, all the other nations are going along well. It's, we're your children. We know you. We should be immune to suffering. It's in essence, God had given permission for the other nations to do some discipline and they were going to be the instrument of God's disciplining His own people. So it's a presumptive cry that belonging to God means that there's no suffering. If you're a Christian here today and you believe that, you raise your hand because we've got to have a long conversation. In fact, I learned, I learned that being a believer in God means that there is often discipline in our lives. Sometimes it's outward suffering, but most often it's inward turmoil, turmoil and unrest and a disturbance in our spirits, a discomforting. God moves us a little and convicts us. I found the Christian life to be almost full of affliction mild though it may be at times and sometimes even severe because God will not allow His children to go on undisciplined to their own destruction. But they didn't seem to take that into account. My God, we know you. This is is not right. As your children, we should not be suffering this way. That's presumptive. Presumptive of Israel. And finally, I think is involved in this as well. It's a blind cry. It, it, doesn't it strike you that they are oblivious to their sin? I mean, this whole book is unfolding and expo- exposing the corruption of Israel. And they're saying, we know you. They are oblivious to their own corruption. I mean, it is blind. In fact, 
They should have feared even saying such a thing because everything they were doing is an indic indicative that they did, in fact did not know their God or if they did know Him, they had disregarded Him and dismissed Him and rebelled against Him. They should never have cried out in the midst of this affliction given their corruption. In fact, they ought to have fallen on their face and thank God for the mercy that they were still, even at this point, yet a nation because that wasn't going to last long. Oblivious. I wonder sometimes, even as the church today, as we call on many Christians and churches around the nation to pray, to pray that God would save our country, that God would restore our country. I wonder how often sometimes we pray that oblivious to the fact that our country is sinning, grossly sinning and defiantly sinning. And even though you as a Christian may not be participating in those sins, if you and I have acclimated and accustomed ourselves to live and to be tolerant in a world that's sinning this way without protest and without speaking truth in light of that sin, then we are part and parcel of the problem. And then how dare in that moment that we cry out to God oblivious to the depth of the corruption of this nation. I think my prayers, as I've already shared, my prayer for our nation is, Oh God, be merciful. Because there is nothing warranting in our nation and in our behavior, in our leaders, and even sometimes even in the activities of the institutional church that would warrant some sort of easing of our affliction. We are ripe and due for the fullness of your wrath. Oh God, be merciful. And I'll be honest, this is my own heart. I pray that he starts right here in the church, right here among believers. Because I'll confess to you, and you could probably confess to me, that you and I have not lived faithfully for God. Not, not like we ought to. We have wondered, we have been preoccupied with the things of this world. We have been anxious and overwhelmed and not walking in faith, but walking inside and by our senses. And we've grown so accustomed to that that we've navigated our entire lives living in this world. I've said many times, it seems to me like the principle of our generation is to figure out how to live this life with one foot in the world and one in the kingdom. I remember doing a little uh, analogy for the youth group one time and I and I was trying to illustrate that point, and I pulled two chairs together and had one of the youth to stand on both chairs. Then I had the other two to gradually start pulling them chair, those chairs apart. And as he did, of course, their legs got farther and farther apart. And the farther apart they got, they, they realized at a certain point, I'm going to have to commit one, one or the other. I can't, I can't do this. I can't stay in both chairs because they're getting so far apart that I've got to commit to one. And let me tell you, in, as an analogy, if you do that, in that day you're going to commit to the world because you've acclimated yourself to the world. So if you're trying to live that way and those worlds begin to separate, you're going to go to the one with which you're most familiar, and that's the world. And there are going to be many who profess Christ who fall in that day. So this was a contradictory cry. One thing they didn't consider or recognize in that cry was that God knew them. Notice they don't say that. Oh God, we know you and you know your people. They don't say that at all. They're oblivious to the fact that he does know them. 
He knows them intimately. He knows the pattern of their rebellion. What does Moses say of his people? They are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. In fact, in fact, God was going to destroy them all in the wilderness for their stiff-neckedness were it not for the intercession of Moses. They are by nature stubborn and stiff-necked. But they don't say, our God knows us. They don't say that at all. They wept and cried out to God with the tears of hypocrites. They cite their knowing Him as their protest against the very discipline He brought against them as the one who knew them. I mean, it's such a contradictory thing. It's so, it's so hypocritical that they would cite their knowing God as a protest against the very affliction and the discipline God was bringing upon them because He knew them. They didn't know God. It reminded me in the New Testament. You remember those that says in that day there'll be many who say to me, did we not do many mighty works in your name? We cast out demons. We did all sorts of things in your name. Do you remember Jesus' reply to them? In that day I will say unto you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What does he say? I never knew you. Their protest would be just like Israel. We know you. We, we even went farther than knowing you. We did miraculous things citing your name. And he says, yes, but the key to entrance into the kingdom is my knowing you. Because when you know me, you just demonstrate your rebellion in many ways. But when you know me and I know you and that relationship was there, then you do your works in a very, very different way. And Israel seems not to have got that. It is the height of hypocrisy, by the way, to claim to know God while disregarding every statute and the very terms of the covenant by which he has made himself known to you. It makes me shameful sometimes of just how contradictory we live and speak, you know. I mean, we say things that are absolutely true. We can give you sight. We can cite verse and chapter. We can even give you a theological exposition and the history of the church dealing with this doctrine. But then we'll close that Bible and walk out and live as though that doctrine never was existing. Like it wasn't even true. Someone has said we're, we become practical atheists. Even in the church sometimes. In practice, it's as though we don't believe any of the truths of God. Even if we can cite them all. It really is stunning sometimes. And this was the case of Israel. I just want to share with me the call with you this morning as we close the cause of judgment in detail. He's already given it in summary. You transgressed the covenant and you've rebelled against my law. And now he's going to detail that out a little more and it's sobering. In verses 3 you see that through 14. In verse 3 Israel has rejected the good. What a statement. They've rejected the good. They've embraced the evil. Think about this. Israel's God was her good. God is the good of Israel. God is your good. God is their good. And all the blessings that flow through your knowing God, through your relationship with God. That is the good. And because of their rejection and rebellion against God, they rejected the good. And as a result, were living, uh, embracing, and flourishing, as it were, in the evil. They had rejected the good. This is God's detailed indictment. 
You want to know what your problem is, Israel? You want to know why there's affliction upon you? Even while you cite your knowing me, it's because you've rejected me. You've rejected your good. And so there's no good for you. There is no good left for you, having rejected the very source of goodness. It amazes me sometimes of how, how, how this world, people in this world will want all the goods that that flow from God's blessing of this nation while at the same time wanting none of the God from whom they flow. Give us prosperity, give us peace, give us, give us all these things, give us stability, give us environmental soundness while we don't acknowledge even that you exist. Just provide these blessings for us and it'll be good enough. Well, when we reject God as a nation, we reject our good just as Israel rejected their good. And I'm afraid to say we see that happening many ways in our day. I pray that God is beginning to turn hearts upward, as Hosea says. In verse 4, another of their evils or the cause of these judgments is that they had assigned leaders to themselves literally without consultation with God. In verse 4, they have set up kings. He goes on to say they appointed princes, but not by me, but I didn't know it. I don't think God knows all things. I don't think he means here that it happened outside of my omniscience. I think he means there was no consideration or consultation with me at all in regards of who they would set into positions to submit themselves to. Think about that in our nation. How much earnest prayer and consultation with God and his word goes into our our appointment of leaders, whether mayors all the way up to presidents and ambassadors, how much earnest prayer goes into a nation as it appoints its leaders. I worry sometimes, and I'm sure you do, that sometimes it seems that the office goes to the highest bidder. Whoever can put the most money in, uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, I, you know, of course, you're pretty much excluded from ever being president because unless you know enough people to raise several hundred million dollars just to run a campaign. Well, I, I got news for you. That, that, shrinks the, that shrinks the field pretty much, right? Not many people can put together that kind of money. But that's one of the indictments God had against his people. In fact, the result was we know from the prophecy that they elected people who were reflecting their own corruption, the more corrupt they became, the more they exalted corrupt men, and the more corruption came. And it was just folding over on itself over and over again where both leader and people were deteriorating and falling deeper, deeper into their corruption. God's cause for his judgment is that they appointed leaders, kings, and princes without the slightest consultation of God. How do we do that today in consultation with God? Read the book. Let the book shape us morally and principally and even practically. And then do the best we can to elect candidates that were, that were living and policy-wise and prescribing things that are consistent with the truths that we hear there. That would be one way of honoring God. And perhaps God would raise up godly men and women in the, our nation's leadership. But they weren't doing that in Israel. They were assigning for themselves leaders you can, imagine, you can imagine how there was an exchange of money going on there. 
I'll, I'll exalt you as the leader, get all my crowd behind you. But by the way, when you get there and you get that kind of power, kick some of that back down to us and we can all get wealthy together. Boy, that sounds eerily reminiscent of our day today, doesn't it? And God says this is why judgment's coming upon Israel. So is America any less exposed to that? This one really got me in verses 4 and 6. They made idols, and these are my words, but they made idols of that which they valued. It really is striking. In verse 4 he says, he says, With their silver and gold they have made idols for themselves. And then if you go down to verse 6, he says again there, A craftsman made it. A craftsman made it. And it just really struck me that it was silver and gold that constituted their idols. It was as though they deified what they and the world placed their value upon. Even more ironically, the craftsman creates it. I love it here when Hosea, God says through Hosea, it is no God. You took what you placed the highest value on, and because you were too righteous just to worship money, you took that thing that is valued, shaped it into a figurine, and then set it up and began to worship that. So essentially, you've elevated what you value most to deity and to godhood among yourselves. And that's what you've served. And by the way, he adds here, a craftsman made it. So who is the real God? If the idol is a God, then the greater God brought the idol into existence, wouldn't you say? Logically speaking, if, if I bring you to, into existence, I call you into existence, wouldn't you think that I am, more, I am greater than you? Because I'm in, ahead of, I'm in back of you. You wouldn't exist without me. Here they are with silver and gold, the thing that they valued, shaped by a craftsman into an idol, set it up on a pedestal, and everybody's oblivious that the man who made it is greater than the idol itself. He is no God. And nor is it a God when you evaluate and exalt the things that you value. Your silver and your gold, your, your policy, your, your, your economic outlook, your foreign policy. If you, value, if you elevate what you value into the place of God, just be reminded that it is no God. That is no God. There is one God. And Israel had rejected that one God and in His place, had essentially raised up that thing which they valued. I thought about this. Essentially, they created a God according to what they valued, as I've said, crafted into an object of attention and adoration, which served to obscure from them that it was actually they themselves who, who they were exalting above God, their creator. Do you know that that was Satan's original sin? He sought to ascend the throne of God. Why should God be God? I'm a great, powerful angel. Why can't I be God? I will ascend the throne. I will exalt myself above God. Well, when they made their idols of the things they valued and set them up and a craftsman made it, the craftsman himself was worshiping himself, I think, in, reflection, in reflective form. In other words, he's the power behind the idol and he worships the idol as an obscure way of worshiping and exalting himself, which is exactly a repeat of the very sin of Satan himself, the liar and the deceiver and the destroyer of all men. This is what they were guilty of. 
In verse 5, he says they were incapable of innocence. That is a striking term. It, it really intensifies the simple guilt of sin. That's bad enough. Not, not merely here an unwillingness to forsake their sin, but an incapability of doing so. Such, I wrote, is the peril of stubborn, prideful hearts. What is the start? What is at the start of fleshly resistance to the light and truth? Long persistence makes into an incapability. We are incapacitated to good and righteousness. We can be innocent in nothing because even the outwardly good things we may engage ourselves in are done in pride and self-exaltation, incapable of innocence. That's his indictment of Israel. They're not just unwilling or reluctant to do good. They're not just accidentally sinning. They have sinned willfully and defiantly so long now that they have rendered themselves incapacitated to do anything right or good. It is only evil continually. I think that's the heart of Paul's repeat of the Old Testament passage in Romans 3, 10 and following. There is none good, no, not one. None of them. There's none that seeketh after God. They are altogether become unprofitable. This is what Israel had become. And such is that peril. I'll close with this, this last one and we'll pick up some of these tonight. They have sown the wind. Did you, do you get the, the implication of that passage in verse 7? They have sown the wind and they reap the whirlwind. As with any sowing... What is sown is harvested exponentially, right? Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd be planting corn, and we'd go along, we'd drop about three kernels of corn in a hole and <clears throat> come back and cover that up. <clears throat> corn stalk would grow, had many, kernel, many years of corns on it, corn on it, and there were exponentially more kernels on that. And that's the principle here. Whatever you sow, you sow in kernel form, but you reap exponentially. And what had Israel been sowing? Wind. Wind. A wind is a pleasurable thing. We like a good slight breeze, but they had been sowing it in, in its singular form. They've been sowing the wind. But what are they reaping now? The whirlwind. They're getting back what they sown exponentially now. And that is the judgment. The whirlwind they reaping, they themselves had sown. And to me, that's striking. Israel's judgment will be related to their sowing. And though they cry to him, seemingly oblivious to this sowing and reaping principle. What have we been sowing in our nation? And take it ever how far back you want to. 100, 200 years since our founding, particularly, particularly in, our, in the modern era. What have we been sowing? Wind. Wind in many cases. And I think we're beginning to see the, the breeze pick up now. And maybe even beginning to see the whirlwind in this nation and God's people, we ought to wake up. I want to continue tonight just detailing some of these indictments and then finally uh, the judgment that God pronounces upon him. But for this morning as you stand and as we close, uh, I just want us to be reminded, and I'll spend a lot of time on this, but think about this uh, tonight as you, or this afternoon as you go home. But in verse 11, perhaps the most striking of all these passages for me is he talks about they defiled their altars. He says, 
Think about this passage. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. And I thought about this. The more common the sacred becomes to us, the more likely we will fall into a superficial participation in those things. I want to share more about that tonight, but that was the most frightening thing in this entire chapter when he said that. And that's what I hope we'll be prayerful about uh, even as a church and as a nation. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is heavy. It is in some ways frightening. It causes us to tremble. But Father, I thank you that we've already sang about a rock of ages, torn, broken, cleft for me. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we have a hiding place. The judgment pronounced upon Israel and ultimately that came upon Israel, the northern kingdom, Father. That judgment and that wrath was just as sure hanging above our heads when we were outside of Christ. But thank you that through the cross that rock was hewn, hewn apart. It was cleft. It was torn. And in the tear, Father, you, you hid us away. And so that Christ received the fullness of your wrath due us, this judgment that we speak of, heavy and, and dreaded as it is, Father, it was ours. It was due us. But in Christ we have been saved and preserved, and he has become our refuge from this. So, Father, we rejoice in that great name of Jesus today. And Father, I do pray for all those who are here. My hope and prayer is that every single soul represented in this room has been hidden away in this cleft Christ. But Father, you know the heart. And I pray that this morning you might call those who are yet outside of Christ to yourself so that they may behold the glory of Christ, so they may behold your glory, so they might be preserved from the certain judgment to come. So have your way in these moments of invitation, we ask in Jesus' name.